Hey there, and thank you for tuning your dial to the first episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. When I was thinking about starting this series, I thought that I wanted to start it by going backwards to another crisis that struck us suddenly. I didn't want to think about what got us there, or the immense shift in policy, legislature, and culture that came from it, but instead I wanted to focus on a human story. We've all been going through this pandemic in one way or another, feeling the panic. Most of us experienced a palpable concern going to the grocery store for the first time during lockdown, or rolling down the streets and seeing all the stores closed, the fear, the uncertainty, the chaos. Now, imagine if you can, losing your internet access, no television, no access to any outside information. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine not reaching for your phone? It's hard for me. I wanted to talk to someone that was there, on the ground, not too far from where the Twin Towers fell. A story about what life is like, how it changed suddenly, and what living through a moment that, in his words, felt too big to panic. My good friend Rowan tells a story about what his life was like before the attack, how he lived those days following, open acts of community, and horror, along with lasting effect that it had on him since. Most episodes like this will be straight interviews, but since Ron and I know each other quite well and are prone to have very long philosophical and literary discussions, we started off by jumping through a thought on how most of what we take for granted today really isn't that old. One quick note before I jump right into the episode, uh, I said at about the middle point of the discussion before the interview really starts uh, that Samuel Huntington wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel uh, when it was actually Jared Diamond. Uh, Samuel Huntington wrote Class of Civilizations. Uh, Both of these books will come up in a couple later episodes. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod however it is that this is getting to your ears. But in the meantime, enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Okay, would you mind just introducing yourself as however you would like? I'm going to like cut the clip up, so however you, however you like to make your introduction, just would you mind just doing that really quick? No, I have that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, my name is Rowan, and I... Uh, I work with experts and entrepreneurs who are kind of uh, driven by expertise and usually engaged in some kind of consulting or software business. That's what you do, but who are you? Um, (laughs) I am a, I am a contrarian um, (laughs) kind of free spirited, uh, pretty good natured human being um, from, from planet earth. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. It's true. I think it's all true. I that's think my, it's true. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. I How think would it's, you define contrarian? Um, I guess like willing, I guess I just, you know, willing to set yourself against whatever's there. Um, so I think, you know, uh, offense can be contrarian, a, 
the root of a tree can be contrarian, you know, can resist gravity or mud flows. So it's just like finding a way to like hack whatever's coming or whatever. I mean, you know, classically, like whatever idea you gets thrown at you, it's the willingness and, and I guess ability cultivated ability to um, change it or stop it. But it's not arbitrary, right? Like you wouldn't just say like arbitrarily that you enjoy fighting the norm or does it have to be targeted and virtuous? I mean, that's, that's definitely like one sense of the meaning of the word. It's the way it's, it's, it's used derogatorily in that sense of reflexive disagreement. Um, but no, no, I think, I think um, that's not how I was describing myself. I was, I think I was trying to make myself look better than that. <laughs> and, and I'm and just so, trying to get you comfortable. So whatever yeah, works. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's working great. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I think, I think it's, uh, I think there's, it has to be based in, you know, your understanding of what's true and what's morally right. And otherwise it's, hmm. otherwise it's BS. It's not really being contrarian. It's just, I don't know. It's a lot of things disagreeable. Um, so targeted and virtuous disagreeability. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Targeted and virtuous disagreeability. Yeah. To any broader movement that happens to be occurring at a contemporary, a contemporaneous time to said contrarian individual. Yeah. If, I mean, ideally something that's important not, and not trivial, but yes. So what would you say is the most opinion that you are presently as you're sitting in the Catskills? What's the proper conjugation um, of turning it into a verb to be contrarian? Um, or contrari- 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 you contrariously? Wanna, you want to verb the adject- adjective? Yes, that's what I'm trying to do. What, what are you... <laughs> what Contrarize? Are you contrarize what what am i what's what's the most important thing for me to contrarize uh contrarianite yeah Uh, the i think the idea that um the idea that there isn't free movement and opportunity in the climate of this pandemic um so i think you know i think there is a lot of opportunity to move and um more of a need than ever to accept that it's really hard to predict your fate more than a couple of years out. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but yeah, I think that, I think that's something that's what's out there. And I think the bigger idea is that things are just going to, we're just going to wait things out and re- until they return to normal. I don't think that's, yeah. Really you just sparked two thoughts of mine. So uh, one is um, it's a huge cliche, but I think there's a lot of value in cliches. And it's um, mm-hmm. the symbol in Chinese for chaos is the same symbol as opportunity. And uh, mm. truly, I don't think any opportunity is other anything other than taking advantage of the chaos. I don't think there's ever been a situation that you can't apply that logic to. Um, I think that's just a universal truth. Um, I think a lot of people generate opportunity, but they generate opportunity by spotting something else that's happening in a maelstrom. And I think the other the other thing that that makes me think of, especially with our current topic that we're about to talk about and the current state of time is that uh, the 
true normal is chaos. Normalcy isn't normalcy. Like what we define as normal of like, I wake up every day. I'm expecting it to be a certain temperature. I'm expecting to be able to go to work on time. I'm not expecting the sky to be falling. That's not normal um, for the most of the, the most of recorded sapien history. I would say that that hasn't been the case. It's been small periods of normalcy that we lull ourselves into that are always stopped by some kind of massive chaotic external shock. If that's a plane landing into a building, uh, literally <laughs> a piece mm-hmm. of the sky falling down, um, or like an unforeseen pandemic. I mean, I've been reading a lot about uh, um, South America, pre, pre-Columbian South America, particularly the cusp of when the first couple um, Spanish expositions landed in South America. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> I don't think any of those folks thought that what was about to happen was about yeah. to happen, you know? And like, yeah. you know, and, and I think even our contemporaneous uh, example of what progress is and modernity is, I think is pretty whack um, because I think in a lot of ways <clears throat> we have progressed to be the most, you know, pinnacle of society and civilization that's ever occurred. But um, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that other people have progressed in better ways previously. Um, particularly, I think, in, in homeostasis with the environment in which we live. I think we are completely far removed from that. And I think there's been a lot of civilizations that were much more harmonious with their uh, ecological. And I mean, I say ecological, but really what that just means is your actual environment around you. You know, yeah. not just like the, the artificial artifice of a bunch of bricks and steel that you feel comfortable within, you know, the actual, like, what is around the steel? What are you standing on top of? What is the steel on top of? What's the concrete on top of? How's the power? You know what I mean? Like all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's this uh, book called the art of clear thinking by, I think it's called, uh, I think the author's name is, um, um, Schultz. That's probably wrong. I'll look it up, but, um, he's got this theory that, the concept of success was invented in like 1684, (laughs) you know, like, and it was, it was kind of like born of essentially not complete wacko Puritanism, but kind of like business minded, like sensible Puritanism of like the colonial towns where essentially virtue was equated with our material success was a sign of uh, spiritual virtue. So the religion of the, of the day created this concept of success that was written about in a book. I can't really name the author, but it's fairly well known. And it was, according to this author, it was the first instance of using the concept of success in, in writing. And now we have books about success. Or, I mean, that's one of the major subjects of our time, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, a quite of a quite... There's like certain topics or individuals that about once a year I start diving into. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've talked about Bruce Lee before, but Bruce Lee is definitely one of the ones that I go back to. Yeah. Um, ecology is definitely something I, I go back to ancient Rome, you know, um, but one of them is Shakespeare. And oh, I've nice. been, I've been doing a really hefty deep dive into Shakespeare lately. Um, I'm doing like one of those, you know, the great courses or whatever. I'm listening to one of those on Shakespeare. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that, shortly following Shakespeare, we start defining sex success that way. Cause mm-hmm. like in the great what ifs of the world of like, what if this person didn't exist or what if what happens if they didn't become known? Um, you know, two that I go back to frequently are Shakespeare and Van Gogh. 
Like if we didn't have Shakespeare, what would our life be like right now? I think it'd be considerably different. And I think if we didn't have Van Gogh, once again, our lives today would be considerably different in a way that I don't think we would really be able to quantify. Um, and like the, the whole definition of your lot in, success, in society is, is defined by Shakespeare in a lot of ways of what's your mm -hmm. material wealth, what's your social status, and what's your stability of those two. And that is really, you know what I mean? Now you're yeah. successful, right? Like, right. And it's also interesting because like, you know, we think about the Renaissance and like this weird kind of way that it's almost like an arm's length away, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Renaissance, oh, that's far away, right? Yeah. But, you know, in the arc of human history, <laughs> the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, like those are bookends, like they're right next to each other. Like, you know, we, we are definitely, our modern life is definitely oh. a product of the, and the Enlightenment. The alignment was definitely a product of the Renaissance and they it weren't definitely. necessarily that far from each other whatsoever. Um, right. And, and as far as like streams of thought, I, I think I can make a fairly good case that actually the enlightenment was an extension to the Renaissance, not a separate movement. It is definitely a separate movement because of the way that the thinkers and the expression of the thinkers, like, okay, like in Puritan England, there's no way you could express the thoughts of John Locke, right? No way. They wouldn't, they would, mm -hmm. they would be call you, you know, you can't do that. You can't, you can't separate church from state. You can't mm -hmm. uh, talk about natural law and, uh, you know, laws of man. You couldn't do that because there's only the law of God and the will of God, right? So you wouldn't be able to do that. And I understand the distinction of drawing a line because of that, but commerce, you know, the, 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 like, what it was it usury, like usury was, it was, mm -hmm. you know, what we call loans now, right? Like they called it usury and Christians were like, you can't do that, but they would write into law like it's it's you know, morally reprehensible. You can't be a usurer. You can't charge interest on loans. But in the law, you can so long as it's under 10%, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I mean, another good example of like Catholicism in, you know, Holland. Catholics were harshly persecuted, but they were told, don't make a fuss, be good for business, and you'll be left alone, right? So, <laughs> so then all of a sudden they become like these giant business people, Um and and I find that interesting. It's it's something that I feel like the 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 link between Renaissance Christianity and the Enlightenment, I think, is not one that is is often seen as a direct line. Yeah, people don't. You're right. I, I think I think it's not often seen. I mean, I think you can certainly find plenty of historians who draw plenty of connections between movements from the two time periods. But as far as like periods, the way that we think about it, I feel like we think about them as containerized units. Yeah, we're we're taught that they're containerized yes. separate and that's, things, and that's which more is ridiculous. Point. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> right. that's a good point. Right. Yeah, right. totally. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah. I mean, it's you know, the the Renaissance was inspired by a rediscovery of classical Greece and Rome, of actual physical rediscovery, and also an intellectual rediscovery in terms of um, recuperating manuscripts or putting lots of uh, older manuscripts into translation. And I would challenge that actually. And I would say trade with the Arab, Arab world is what popped it off. The Renaissance. Yes. That's interesting. I, I, um, I would, de I would definitely concede a great deal of tr like physical and intellectual trade with the Arab world. And that's, really well documented in this book called um, Civilizations by Felipe Fernandez Armesto, the historian. You've, uh, this is actually one that is on my queue. You mentioned this to me before. I think I've mentioned book. it to you before. You have, yes. So I, I didn't, 
I, I accepted it could be that it was stimulated by the by Arab culture. What's your thinking on that? Um, twofold. Uh, there's this book, um, Admin Maloff. He's an author that uh, has is a cornerstone of my like complete shaking of my my intellectual thinking that happened at a pivotal time. Uh, and he wrote this book called The Crusades Through Arab Eyes. Mm, and I've heard of that. I. Mm-hmm, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, let me sum it up to you like this. So you're in an Arab city state. So Arabs at the time, um, the Arab world at the time. So like, let's just think of the Middle East um, was essentially like a loose band of, it was very Greek. They were all city states and they all kind of considered themselves Arab. Um, and because of that, they didn't have any cultural identity past that. They had city identity and cultural identity by their cities. Um, but there was no nation state and there was no concept of a nation state. There wasn't really even a concept of a kingdom outside of your like cities. Fiefdom, I see. Right. Interesting. So, but there was um, because of this shared cultural Arab law structure, even right. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of defaulted. Think of it almost like tribalism 2.0. Right. So like uh, you're a different city state. I've never met you, but we have a shared set of laws and standards because we're both Arabs. Right. And because we both worship Islam and things like that. Now that we may have different sects and that might confuse things and that may make things tumultuous. And I am generalizing, but I'm generalizing for just the point of the Renaissance, um, which is, um, let me paint you this picture. You're in the, okay. you're in some Arab city state. Um, it's, it's right before the crusades and, or it's about to pop off. And within your city, there's a lot of things that we would consider modern thinking. So religious mm. freedom, 100% religious freedom. Yeah. They didn't care. They had their, their gates open to everybody. Anybody can come in and out freely from the gates. They didn't check your ID. Like they didn't have ID mm-hmm. cards, but they would ask you questions back then, right? They didn't have any of that. You can come in and outside of the, wall, the walls all you want. You want to bring something in, you want to sell it to the market, you can do that. We're not going to charge you that much of a tax. In fact, we're only going to charge you a tax to get in the door. We're not going to probably charge you a tax on that much. Unless you're kind of starting to undercut things, then we'll take care of it out back or something, right? Um, so freedom of commerce, freedom of trade freedom of religion, freedom of expression. Yeah. All of that was going on. There was also simultaneously um, state funding of the arts and sciences, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were a Jew, so a lot of Jews were really prominent in yeah. these city states back in the day, right? They were big, they were big uh, uh, drivers of, you know, obviously finance or not obviously, but finance and, uh, construction and like artisans like they were they were an ingrained, ingrained part of the community and you know in this book as well he actually details how the arabs would always comment that the jews punched above their weight essentially right they would always be contributing more than you know mm-hmm. you would imagine from a minority right which is something that you hear a lot about today um so this is all happening you you, you were essentially living in what we would define london as and I don't even know if we ever really would though, right? Because were, were other minorities, religious minorities, when were they in like London able to freely express themselves? When were you able to just walk in off the street as, as another citizen of whatever and come in and be able to sell your goods? Were you, when, you know what I mean? Like these are the questions that I'm, I'm intentionally posing because of the next thing. So one day there's a horde of people that look that you can smell them before they come up. Mm-hmm. So they, they describe like the, the documents of the Arab historians describe how they were able to smell this horde of people coming before they saw them. They looked ragtagged. 
They looked like they were wearing like disheveled clothes. They looked like they hadn't eaten very much. They looked like they hadn't bathed. Um, and the Arabs were expecting to open the gates of their cities and let them let refugees in. And then as hmm. they start coming up, they realize, are they warriors? Are they fighting us right now? What? Close the gates. Pour some tar on them. What are these people thinking? Right? So th- that happened. And they, the, this ro- rolling ragtag group of mission Christian crusaders um, came in. They got stomped pretty badly uh, mm-hmm. because, like I said, they were kind of the rejects a little bit. Right? They weren't like the, the first class starters of the Christian world. So because that happened, now all of a sudden the Pope is like, okay, you now have the grace of the Pope. Go over there and just start kicking down doors. Um, and then that's like when that whole area started kind of getting the door kicked in. Mm-hmm. And in my eyes, I think that that door kicking in and the eventual trade that got set up from that and spices and raw goods, gold, all of that started a cultural exchange that then popped off advanced mathematics and advanced because they had algebra. They, yeah. The Arab world at this time had algebra. So like when you think of the cultural Mecca of the world right before the Crusades happened, it's Baghdad. And Baghdad, like I'm saying, was probably more culturally inclusive and expressive, more culturally of a, and what we would with our modern eyes call an ideal city than yeah. London was until when, I mean, Alan, like one of my heroes, Alan Turing was forced to, to you know, chemically castrate himself because he was gay. And that happened, and this is the the hero of the you know yeah. the, the Turing test and the hero of the Enigma still, machine and all that, right? Turing that statues was like, down this summer in mm-hmm, London. Yeah, for, and that, but I mean, Alan Turing was like 1949. So my, sure, my question, my, yeah. my question of like, I don't know how much homosexuality was was tolerated in the Arab world back then. Probably not very much, but mm-hmm. let's just say like if you were a minority of a religious sect, when were you able to? I mean, we were just talking about the Renaissance in the 1600s and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, London, like it was definitely a rebirth, a rebirth of thought and culture, but it was not a rebirth as far as cultural expressionism, um, especially if you were a minority. Um, so I, I, that's why I say, like, yes, I th- there definitely was like a, a rediscovery of literature and an ability of like being able, uh, uh, because of the monasteries kind of having better routes with each other and better education with themselves, and like the mo- monastic system really, get, you know, kind of coming up. Mm-hmm. Then a lot of this like ancient literature was able to get rediscovered and retranslated. Um, but I don't think that would have gotten them algebra. I don't think that would have gotten oh, right. us the printing press. I don't think that that would have gotten us any of that. And like we talk about the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, when that was actually the Renaissance of the Arab world. Mm, right. right. And then our Crusades come in and we just pretty much, once the Renaissance started, the shift of axis of power went from the Middle East towards Europe. And then it's, you know, kind of stuck there ever since. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's rock solid. I mean, definitely, I mean, certainly there's, you know, I think there's a, uh, there's, there was a massive influence from the classical world, you know, you know, if you compare, you know, 1350 to 1550 or, but yeah, I I think that's without a a doubt, without a doubt, but that's a, that's a great, like, that's great context. Cause that is, that is, that is a story that isn't told That's obviously by, by our conversation, that's not how I think of it by default, but I have been exposed to that idea and the way you lay it out is very convincing. It makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, yeah, it seems everything you're saying also applies to what I learned from living in, you know, I just went to university for a year in Granada 
Spain and I lived in mm -hmm. Seville for a few years. And I remember the Jewish quarter in Seville is massive and beautiful. And that was, you know, that was uh, once the Christians took over, that once kind of Renaissance right. European culture took right. over, that was decimated basically. Right. And why did the Renaissance, why were the, the traditional Spaniards and Europeans able to take back over the Moors and all of that Moorish land advancements in war technology? Where did that come from? The Arab world. Oh, right. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, so I don't know a ton about military um, technology history, but I do know that one of the innovations of the Lombards was uh, basically just metal stirrups and it made it so they could charge and fight in battle. We're, just, we're getting way off in the fields because I don't really know much about the subject, but um, we're at the, we're at past the fringes of what I know. I just know that the Europeans took a lot of, I think it was the ability to make steel faster, but there well, was something with steel that, that increased. It might've been the stir. It might be partially that, but I know there was something with steel that made the Europeans able to, Reannex the Moorish territory of Spain, but the, the smoking, like, the smoking gun too, though is explosives. I mean, that's that comes later than powder. Spain. That comes with Portugal first, but that's China, from China, right? And without yep. the Arabs, it never mm -hmm. would have reached yep. Europe from China. Yep. So yes, uh, fire fire gunpowder came from China. Uh, the Europeans. So, guns, germs, and steel. You know that book. Yeah, yeah, it's a good excellent. book. I, I, I think it's an excellent book. Um, yeah. I think it's. I've read so much about ecology lately that oh, really? I really have a hard time believing his thesis anymore, which is really weird to me because that guns, germs, and steel was like a really big uh, cornerstone in my thinking for so long. Um, no, I mean, I think the biggest gift that that gift of ideas that that book gives is the longitude in which. Europe lives on, it resides on the geographic terrain of Europe and the cultural friction because of those two things yeah. created the dominance that is Europeans. And I think that that's right. Um, because I mean, trade routes and all of that and being able to shut yourself off from China and be able to close, open yourself up to China and all of that, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it's really the, the geographic terrain, uh, the, the longitudinal trade with the Arab world and China that's across that band. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the relative sameness in ecological climate um, in that band. So like agricultural that gets domesticated in one side of it can actually get planted on that entire band, which is huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. As well as because you're roughly in the same geographic terrain and latitudinal spots, you know, things like irrigation techniques and things like that are probably going to be able to be transferable. Yeah. Um, I just think that the Europeans, because they just were constantly fighting with each other, they would just take all the best ideas from anything that was on that band yeah. and just ramp it up because it was like, we got to compete with everybody. They're going to come over the hill and take us, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, the other book by Fernandez Armesto Millennium. That's kind of a large, big picture history book. It's, it's thesis and focus is the same one as you're picking up on from guns, guns, germs, and still it's the just evaluating ge geography and the impact of geography on human culture. Yeah. I've been really getting into geography lately. I've been getting into ecology for like the past year, but uh, the past couple months it's been geography pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, this, there's, it came out before guns and germs and steel. And a lot of people in the reviews I've been reading about it, cite guns and guns, germs and steel and say that uh, Samuel Hun Huntington evolved this idea and it, um, 
Ah. It's called ecological imp- imperialism. Okay. So the, the thesis of it is essentially the Europeans were able to dominate and take over areas, not because of force, but be- because the areas that they took it over were ecologically susceptible to what they brought. Hmm. So like, like a, a quick uh, primer to that kind of as a concept would be like dandelions, Kentucky mm-hmm. bluegrass, and the vast majority of wild prairie life that you would imagine, wild prairie or uh, plants that you would mm-hmm. imagine just out are all European. Interesting. Huh. So the idea in, in this is, is that North America was very susceptible to Europeans uh, plant and eco- ecological life. Uh, right. Uh, so like the dandelion came over by accident because, you know, you feed hay to the cows that you and horses you bring over. The cows and horses inevitably eat dandelion seeds. They're eating the same feed that was packed for them when they were, you know, loaded up in Britain. They get here, they start pooping, they poop out the seeds. There you got a whole, you know, field of dandelions. Yeah. Um, but because they didn't have any like competitors, you know, the niches were just kind of spread through. Where like South America, there was such biodiversity. Um, it was a bit harder to kind of like get in there. Um, so Europeans weren't able to take over as much. Um I'm, I'm grossly so lots, of invasive, lots of invasive species from Europe doing well. Either invasive species or the species that were there were very susceptible to uh, another group, another group of sapiens coming in and destroying them. Uh huh. Sure. So like the other half of that, that I would say that I haven't do- dove into the book yet, but the other half of it that I would say that I'm suspecting is part of the reason why that is so true is because the native peoples that were here in America, North America before even South America too, even more so in South America, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly like where I live in San Diego and South America, actually. Um, and uh, where you are right now, actually, in, in New York and uh, Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is called Penn's Forest, right? But mm-hmm. before uh, Europeans landed there, it was actually all agricultural land in a prairie form. Most of it was agricultural land in a prairie form that was like constantly managed. But since the, wow. you know, uh, smallpox and all that came through all of the native americans died and then they weren't tending the fields as much but it was all very fertile prairie land so this whole forest cropped up out of nowhere wow Um, so if you like read one person's travelogue it's like oh my god there's all this land that's perfect for farming and then you read the next person's travelogue and it's like oh my god there's all this wood for shipbuilding Um, wasn't familiar with that interesting and Mm -hmm. that's that's the theory that on this book ecological imperialism no that's my own uh, that's my own spin to it. I haven't dove into the book mm. quite, uh, mm. quite yet, but my, my susceptibility is why I think European plants and ecological life were able to take over so well is because the land was so heavily, like most of North and South America before, like the culture of the peoples that were native to North and South America before European contact, it was of their culture to treat the land around you, not as a wild nature, but as a garden. Ah, uh, Yeah. But think of it in every area that you that you can think. So, like, I probably can only think 50 miles if I'm really thinking, right? Like, uh-huh. how far away is something from me, right? If I'm being honest with myself, I could probably only really understand the land and the terrain I'm going to cross probably about 50 miles away, right? But that changes where you are, right? Like, if I'm in the yeah. if I'm in Illinois, I could probably maybe 100 miles. You know, it's, it's I can kind of see it. You know, I can kind of mm-hmm. start picturing land. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'm pro- it's probably 10. You know what I mean? But imagine as far as you can conceptualize in every direction around you 
outside of vast distance of ocean unless mm-hmm. you're like you know the Morai people or something um you thought of as a garden that mm. you maintenanced right? yeah so like a good example of this is like i live in san diego there's a lot of hills here that are like yeah. almost like mountainous right mm-hmm. when the when the spanish first got here they said oh my god there's all this wild wild wheat that's growing on all of these hills this is perfect pasture land so they would be bringing the pastures through and they'd be like, they, they were just like loving how much all these hills had all this stuff yeah well, I, it surprises me how naive they were because it never rains here. So you think they would wonder like, how is this all growing if it never rains here? Well, they started wondering where they were going to start feeding their cows because once the stuff wasn't growing back and they were wondering why it wasn't growing back. And it turns out it's because all of it, all of the Hills were covered through like a very intense and thought through irrigation system that was done by the native peoples that were here called the Kumiye. And they would go through like whole systems of create of like, you know, it only rains here every once in a while and they would create lagoons and they would create marshland, wetland, all artificial. They would create like every single mountaintop would have like a like, reservoir at the top of it that they would let out in a proper times. You know, they would, they would store water in wetlands because then the fish would be able to go in there and be great for fish and the cranes would come and, you know, like it would just create a whole habitat. And then when they needed that water, they would drain it. But guess what? That land is now extremely fertile. So now you plant on it and they would just, everything was a garden, right? Yeah. So my theory is if your culture is to manage the land in such a way that's heavily intense, because they are intensively managing the land, somebody comes through, wipes out all the people with disease. Now it's just kind of like the wetland that's all fertile. It's very fertile and there's nothing, it's, there's nothing, all the native things that are here are essentially adapted to the lifestyle of having human hands come in, right? Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I I wonder, you know, how much of the landscape was covered by, I mean, certainly I know in the Northwest and the West coast, there are plenty of old growth forests that are, you know, 500 to a thousand years old. So, I mean, certainly there've been some parts of the landscape that have always been covered by like large, large trees. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I I love this idea that there's big swaths that, we think of as having been covered by trees, but they, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, that's, I know that's the case in Pennsylvania. I know Pennsylvania was mostly managed land that became forest, mm-hmm. but also it wasn't in particularly the continental United States and North America um, and South and like what we think is Central America um, was not this type of culture that I'm, I'm describing, yeah, especially at like, you know, Colombian touchdown. There was great, there was giant pockets of it. Like the Kumiye for sure were this type of managed agricultural society. Yeah. Um, you know, the Iroquois definitely were, there was definitely area parts of Massachusetts, even like there was definitely sections of it, but from the, from the writing of a failed exposition uh, by a guy named Cabeza de Vaca, um, he was lost in like, a, for like 11 years. In like mm-hmm. the interior of America, like he landed in Spain or in uh, I almost said New Spain, Florida. In Florida, yeah, and then uh, he ended up. Um, he he much died near like Mexico City or something. He died um, and was brought back to life. Yeah, <laughs> several times. Um, but uh, yeah, he was there for like eleven years. And if you read his accounts, like the um, numbers of native, like the, the the variety of culture of native peoples that he yeah. goes against is just isn't it's it, it is such a vibrant array that like right. not not all of it was what i'm describing um sure. i can make like i said i can make a pretty strong case that all of the amazon is like that um 
but North America, it's, it's a lot more varied than that. Like the Mississippian mm-hmm. culture definitely was very heavily agricultural in the way that I'm describing. Um, and that, I mean, all of the Mississippian yeah. culture and the Mississippian culture is like you go, you, you throw a dart anywhere on the Mississippi river and that's the culture I'm talking about. So we're talking whole North South, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But lots of, lots of um, climate variation are probably between, I don't know. And that the area we're talking about, like, I guess if we're referencing the modern day United States, it's a lot, a lot more variation relatively than you'd find in what we think of as modern day Brazil. Amazon basin. I mean, yeah. Well, so many plants got domesticated out of the Amazon. Like if you just look up agricultural products domesticated in the Amazon, and then you look at your kitchen mm-hmm. and it's going to be most of what you have. I'm not exaggerating. Like peanuts, cassava flour. Um, oh my god, right. I used to remember more of this, but it's it's a lot of stuff. I'm pretty sure tomatoes. Like it, uh-huh. it's a lot that came from the Amazon. Yeah, um, several, yeah, several forms right. of beans. Um, wow, corn. This is a perfect conditions for a huge garden, I guess. Well, see, here's the, so there's this guy named Graham Hancock, and he goes into this, and other people go into this too, but he's he's the most succinct of it. Um, there's a lot of trees that are hyper dominant in the Amazon mm-hmm. that don't make sense to be hyper dominant. Like the only way that they would be hyper dominant and as like thick and all of that is if somebody made them that way, right? Mm-hmm. So like whole sections of canopy are these massive fruit bearing trees, and that's the wow. other thing is that they're hyper dominant, and they're hyper dominant that happens to be the trees that give people food. Like the Amazon bean tree, the ice mm-hmm. cream bean tree, um, the uh, Brazil nut tree. There's like all these trees that are wow. just like hyper dominant, and they just happen to be the ones. Like, it, come on, that's, that's a bit of a coincidence. Um, yeah. And then there's also accounts of these like lost expeditions. See, like the only thing you get are these lost expositions because the disease just killed everybody. So you only get the people who yeah. got lost before the disease killed everybody. Um, but there's accounts of like these massive garden cities um they mm-hmm. just like everything was just built into the, like a like a city that it was almost like the forest and the city were one like an elven kind of thing you know yeah um, right but there's accounts of that and the crazy thing is is because they're destroying the amazon to put up uh soybean fields and you know and, uh pasture land they're finding them they're finding these like oh, really? settlements yeah they're finding these settlements that are you know uh, very geometric aligned astrologically you know, enough huh. capacity for like several tens of thousands of people, you know, and definitely were wiped out and just all of a sudden the record drops off once smallpox comes. Right. Wow. Interesting. I, I mean, everything can change in an instant, right? Definitely. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Everything can change. Like our, our, our economy can change the way we survive. We eat. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is kind of what I'm here to talk to you about, actually. I know we got off on a riff, but... <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm over caffeinated today. But, no, that's um, fine. Let me just clarify real quick for the record. It's Rudolf Flesch is the author. The art of record. clear thinking. Yeah, this is the guy that cited the first instance of success being in 1648. Also, that the, the opera was invented in 1600 and the chair was invented in 1493. So his point was that things are invented more recently than you think, which goes to your point here, I think, that you're about to introduce, which is that everything can change quickly. Yes, and everything we take for granted now could only be taken for granted up to a certain point, and how quickly we throw that away and change to something new can mm-hmm. be just as quick. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, we normal thought that is not normal. Normal is not normal. Chairs, they haven't been Cheers. with us forever. They're a recent, they're a recent, they're a modern innovation. Cheers. <laughs> I, you said chairs. I thought you said cheers. I did not know oh. that. So like, is he thinking like thrones and stools is how most people sat and like the actual modern conception of like that four, like four, four, four pillar architecture? Four or three legs, um, a flat seat, a back you can lean on and portable. Okay. So those, huh. those characteristics didn't exist. You, there were stools, benches, and thrones. There was That's no chairs that you would take out and you could sit in the, sit for like four hours because you had a back to rest on. Huh. You'd like lean on the table or you'd sit on a bench. That's interesting. Yeah. I immediately wonder how that changed our posture and muscle tone. I, th- I think it had to do with woodworking, right? Like carpentry like, oh, no, evolved slowly over time. You, how it changed our, our posture and so on? Yeah, I wonder. And muscle tone. Probably not very well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Actually. <laughs> um, Progress does not always mean better, but also I'm not going to like, don't take my Ikea chair away from me. Maybe it means that's when we started writing more, you know, because we had our, we had our mm-hmm. chair back. It's a chair back. It's a portable chair mm-hmm. back. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Those writing tables and all that, definitely. That's so fascinating. That's very recent. It's so recent. Here's some of the other things that are recent. Um, it's just stuff that you wouldn't think of. Like, okay, so the novel, 1678. But, I'm, we're talking about the, the okay, so the, the modern narrative the, of the, the modern, like, like somebody in a short like, literary fiction. Yeah, literary fiction. Yeah. Yeah, literary like a like a dramatic story told told as in, in the format of literary fiction. Right. So through, told through a uh, obvious narrator. Isn't that a part of the novel? Right. Is that there is an obvious narrator? That's I think that walking I think through. that that's not necessarily part of a novel. Although that was the, the format for novels at that time, okay. and, and then later people did autobiographical novels. But so we know this goes to your point. Zero invented by the Arabs, five hundred. Right. That's that's fairly recent. Um, that's very recent. The chair, Fort 1490. The corporation really did not exist until 1553. Um, mm-hmm. Progress, the concept. We talked, uh, we talked about success. That was invented in 1684. When I say invented, I mean, he means coined. Minted. Um, minted, yes. Progress, 1683. The concept that hadn't been written about. Progress. Anyway, That's fascinating. So, yeah, some of the, our concepts, our objects, our things, they're fairly new, a lot of them. We think they've been around forever. That's not yes. The case. And we, also, we always forget the paradigm shifts. We only recognize some of them if they're like emotionally tied enough to us as an individual, I feel. You know, like Kennedy getting shot. Mm-hmm. That's, an, that's an easy one. Which right? one? Kennedy. JFK getting shot. Mm-hmm. That's an that's an that's a very interesting paradigm shift that you can point to, right? But a lot of them you forget. You know what I mean? Like some of those that you said, like yeah. the novel. The novel is a paradigm shift. Most people don't realize there's other forms of, uh, you know, presenting a story, right? Most people default to the novel. It's a very American concept. I mean, no- novels mm-hmm. are definitely very Americanized, in the sense of especially that culturally. Um, right. But I mean, that's not that's. That's a paradigm shift that where, where do we zero. There's a paradigm shift that we don't think about, right? Absolutely. And like how and there would literally be no computers if there was no concept of zero. Oh, right. Because it's part it's of also, the all, binary it's theory. All on and off. And on and off means 
there is something or there isn't anything. Right. 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 Yeah. So like what we, what we were going to talk about was nine 11, which is mm. another one of those moments that I think is an obvious, it's an obvious paradigm shift that I do think people think about still, but I don't think they think about its effects. I think that's absolutely what I've noticed in the last six months. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. You say you've noticed that. And why would you say that? Because of the, the governmental response to public protest has been facilitated by, by, um, what was set in motion after 9-11, which was the justification, which, is, which was the policification of society, which is the militarization of police and the justification for like police state behavior, essentially. And, and the, the acceptance, the, 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 the widespread acceptance of it. Also the abuse of the uh, executive branch, all things that happened because of 9-11. Every president since 9-11 has abused the executive branch more so than prior presidents and in terms of executive orders, for example, but also just like essentially, well, this didn't start since 9-11, but, um, you know, using the uh, 90 day security, um, like the um, security action kind of uh, uh, the ninety loop, loophole loophole to military uh, action. I, I mean, I mean the um, the ability for a president to cl- declare a state of emergency and send the U.S. military to yeah. a foreign country without getting uh, permission for war from Congress. So that's not directly related to nine eleven because we actually did get permission um, from Congress to go to right the Constance Belli. The causes ballet, but I, I think it's I think it's more the internal effects of nine eleven that I've noticed um, rearing their heads since the Black Lives Matter protests, for example, and also to some extent the COVID protests. I think on both mm-hmm. on both those fronts. That's in, that's interesting. I I would that's another that's another interesting uh, duality of the overt expression of paradigm shift that happened with 9-11 and I would say the subvert which of the executive branch in particular and I would say it started with Johnson I think the imperial presidency started with Johnson Mm -hmm. and I think that Johnson very quickly and then very subtly started taking more uh, power to the executive branch and then you saw you saw it like you saw the oper- the chaos breeding the opportunity to all of a sudden say like guess what we're just gonna grab the rest of it even though this is what we've been, been doing before but that's I think that's a great a great point um, you know when I think of like the day of nine eleven I was young and mm-hmm. I think of just how I remember the look on like parents faces at school when they were coming to take their kids out of the day early yeah and i just remember them looking distraught mm-hmm. and like i've seen that look i saw that look on people's faces because my parents and like my like uh strained upbringing 
So I had understood what to see somebody to really, I seen an adult really distraught or see someone who was older, really distraught. It, it wasn't something that I hadn't seen before, but it was something that I'd never seen on anyone outside the house. Yeah. So to see these people like openly in public, just like shook, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that really stuck with me. Um, and it's something that I would say, like, I started seeing it again with COVID, right? I started like going, I remember going to the grocery store when yes. it was coming out and like walking through the aisles and like, I would see some people that were just running to get stuff. And I would see other people that look like zombies and just look like, I don't know what to do, you yeah. know? And I wonder what that was like for you. So mm-hmm. you lived in Manhattan when this happened, right? In I 2001. Did. I did. Yeah. So I, I want you to like think about your life in June of 2001. Mm-hmm. What was your normal waking up cycle? I would wake up between eight and 10 in the morning on, on pretty much every day, including weekdays. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. My, my, uh, my workplace, I worked in like a, the classic dot com digital agency. Um, and I think in that era, especially digital agencies and tech startups, uh, starting their workday at 11 was not uncommon. Hmm. So, so like company wide company wide. Yeah. You, you could, huh. you could work either nine to five or 11 to seven. There's a lot of freedom around that. So, yeah. And I, I, at the time I lived on Orchard and Stanton, which is a block off of Houston, which is, um, like if I'm looking at Manhattan as a knife, like an upside down butter knife, where right. are you on the butter knife? You're you're a little bit towards the serrated edge and uh, about four-fifths towards the bottom, I think. Okay, and the serrated edge is the east side of it? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so if yeah. upside down butter, butter knife. <laughs> yeah, upside down butter knife. Go, I you're think like a third from the upside. bottom on the, on the east side. That's about that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so... Um, and then the you know I would walk across the that was the Lower East Side. What was your breakfast? Breakfast there was a um, there was an Israeli cafe, so not so much a Jewish cafe, but an Israeli cafe. Yeah. Um, and they just just made really good like French pastries and coffee. So. So that was a daily ritual. It was a it was a daily ritual. Um, there was Russ and Daughters about a block away, which is kind of like landmark uh, Jewish deli hmm. um, from the old from the old days that hasn't really changed, and just amazing bagels. And so that was right there too. Um, I was wondering so, if you had bagels and where you where you were getting them from. That was actually I was curious. Bagels and, and schmears, yeah. yeah, right around the corner, mm-hmm. Russ and Daughters. Um, yeah, that was it for the most part. It was always something off the street because. That was just, there was lots of, if I missed either one of those, I would walk through Nolita and then walk through Chinatown slash Little Italy, which are kind of the same thing now, and to Soho, which is where my office was. So there's lots of places to eat on the street, hmm. bagels usually. Okay. So then you, you got it. You got a bagel. I'm going to go with the bagel. You got a bagel sure. and you uh, walk to the office. Did you walk to your office? Did you take a subway? 
I usually walked every now and then I'd grab a cab if I was running late for a meeting or something, but I usually walked. Yeah. Like 20 minute walk. Yeah. 15 minutes. Oh, that's nice. 15 minute walk. Yeah, it was good. Okay. So you, you walked to work and I wouldn't imagine you listened to music. Did you? No, I did. I, I, um, music was free at that time. There was a thing called Napster. The original Napster right. made, made all music free for about a year, about eight months. And, um, yeah, I had an MP3 player and hit earbuds. And, yeah. Okay. All right. So you were the MP3 and Napster. This is really circa 2001. I like it. Yeah. Um, so you're listening to some music. Uh, and what are, are you, what you, do you do? Are you going to work? Are you setting the stage for the morning of 9-11? I'm setting the stage for what your life was like. I'm curious. Okay. I'm trying to get yeah. you. So, I'm so using yeah, the method in of, general. Okay. I'm kind of hacking the method of Loki to get you in the mindset ah, to, okay. to actualize more of the day. Okay, cool. Great. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I would, um, I would usually not be in a rush. Um, sometimes I was in a rush as I, as I referenced a second ago, but usually it was um, not so much when you started as, as, as what you did. Um, so, um, so what was, you, what would you do is you roll into the office and what would you do? You were coding, you were running um, meetings. What were you doing? What was your day? And how stressful was it? Sometimes it was stressful because we had this thing where we would meet these huge project deadlines. Um, everything was kind of, so there was no, um, you know, the, the programming language libraries weren't finished yet. So you just kind of mix, you just kind of made shit up. Like PHP, for example, like it was like PHP 3.0 or 2.6 or something. And it was like, a bunch of stuff just wasn't done with the language. So you kind of like couldn't really use it for everything, but you could use it for like some stuff. Then right. you use Perl. <laughs> you like, you use like different stuff. Table. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of like what work was like, I think for people trying to make software, for people trying to make websites, complex websites, it was um, haphazard and, and random and very cool. hacky. It was super yeah. hacky. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So my day was, um, so I, I'd get in there and, I was really into this game called Unreal Tournament, which was one of the first oh, yeah, multiplayer really FPS games. Yeah, it was the first Unreal Engine, right? Yeah, it was the first one. And it was like, for me, I think it was, it was one of the first two that were like huge that people played like all over the world with each other simultaneously, which is like normal now. But really back then, mostly people who played that were some college kids, but mostly it was people that worked at like tech startups and digital because we're the only ones that had T1 like super fast mm -hmm. connections and like really nice computers and no one could do it on a desk, a laptop back then. You had to have a desktop. So we had like nice computers and um, there were 300 people at my agency. So there was like a Toronto team, a San Francisco team and a New York team that we would battle each other in Unreal Tournament. Like that's really cool. Team capture the flag kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and that was part of my day. I mean, it wasn't always how I started my day. Um, usually it was more like the afternoon or evening, but sometimes, um, yeah, and I, I did, um, I was like a, I started as like a, a front end developer, but then I started doing um, ASP programming and then I started doing like information architecture, just like wireframing and stuff like that. So it's just basic like web development design stuff. Yeah. And back in the day, so you were, and well, startups usually have a culture of wearing multiple hats. Um, but 
back then i mean that was probably a requirement especially with all the hacking and everything yeah like we hadn't really defined like there was no there was no term ux design i was gonna say there wasn't a ux designer i was just gonna say that actually there was like an information architect and a which was more like a traditional like workflow diagrammer yeah or or a data guy or data guy too yeah and then there was you know web designers and web developers and project managers and like you just we we just all figured it out together i think that's That's how ux design works (laughs) yeah that's how it should work anyways Um, yeah true so okay so then at night would you were you mostly like living up what was your uh, how let me let me rephrase this because i want to uh frame my question properly um what was your typical way of getting the new york experience Mm, right well um I don't know. There was just a lot of places right around where I lived where there were just cool, cool spots to just kind of poke around and hang out. And I mean, there were, there were dozens of them. So, you know, it was kind of just, yeah, I guess connecting with people that had lived there or lived there. And so connecting uh, with people in bars and cafes. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I hadn't, I was in an office full of like 150 people that were between the, you know, I was like 26 at the time. So there was about 150 people within a few years of that age range. Um, so that was the main thing. And then, yeah, like in my neighborhood, in the Lower East Side, there were certain people you would, you'd recognize and see repeatedly. And I just knew like randomly other people from before I moved to New York that lived in the area. The thing that um, I admittedly haven't spent nearly enough time in New York City, but I've been there uh, a few times for work. But the thing that uh, struck me was how much of almost a neighborhood feel you get when you live in a block for long enough. Yeah. Right. And yeah, like, totally. I didn't, I didn't understand. Someone told me this, they lived in New York when I was there once. And I didn't understand that until like living here in San Diego and I live on one of the beaches and I'm starting to see like the same people over and over again, like when I'm mm. walking the dog and stuff and they'll like wave to me and like, you know, before you know, you're like, I haven't started having conversations with people, but in New York city where you're constantly you're closer, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're brushing up against each other. I can understand that more where you just kind of see people and it's just, I mean, like, Hey, what are you doing? Absolutely. And, it, and it's an interesting thing of a city of a mega city to get something like that, you know? Yeah, it is interesting. And I think you can, there are various levels to which that happens based on how you like structure your life. Cause you can certainly spend a lot of your time outside of your neighborhood. Um, and I did actually, cause I, I had just various destinations um, uptown and um, you know, in Brooklyn and so on. My, uh, my, <clears throat> My partner at the time was, you know, originally from uh, Brooklyn Mm. and um, we were both really into art and she'd been an art student. So we were at one point after I, after I, I finagled my, my way into getting fired on purpose so I could collect bonus 9-11 unemployment insurance extended, (laughs) which I used to go live in Hawaii. Um, I, uh, that's we went to the, I went to the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We went 30 days in a row every single day. We said, we'll That's never awesome. have this opportunity to do this. And we've been, we'd been there a bunch of times and we'd seen that we'd never been able to really get it. And we felt frustrated. And we also felt that we needed to start from prehistory 
to the modern day, which is what that museum gives you the opportunity hmm. to do. You can look at art from every time period in every part of the world, um, and you can work your way through time. And so we did that. And um, yeah, we a few hours a day, you know, three or four hours a day. And, um, you know, that certainly took me out of my neighborhood, but it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was great. I, I really enjoyed hearing that. I didn't know that about the Met either, the, yeah, it's, the timeline it's, thing. It's a spectacular collection or set of collections. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. Is so it, when you were when you were living in New York, you went to the Catskills too, where you are now. Yeah, area. yeah, yeah, yeah. We um, I had my my car, which I'd driven out from California, which is where I'd moved from. I parked it in Poughkeepsie, which is where Vassar is, which is upstate, and you can take the train from uh, Grand Central Station, and it's like an hour. And, 20 minutes or something. So that kind of sets you as opposed to trying to park your car in um, Manhattan, if you're not rich, which I wasn't. So that was like, you know, 40 bucks a month in uh, parking lot fee. So I just pick it up in Poughkeepsie and um, <laughs> Poughkeepsie. <laughs> I used to call it Poughkeepsie for fun. <laughs> it just, that, that's like a launch pad into the Catskills. It's like right there, really close, right across the river. I love your chutzpah. Like in the time that we've been talking, you've already mentioned that you lived in California, uh, New York City, and Hawaii. And the, yeah, that the, was the, that was the, the highly, how you do it or is transient. Great. That was a transient, right? Yeah, right. That I did, I did, I did move about with chutzpah. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great. I, I enjoy hearing it. Um, okay, so you're, you're no you're no stranger to quick movements. It seems like or. Uh, paradigm changes i think that's fair yeah yeah it seems like you you live it <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, yeah i'm not i'm not probably not as like impressive as i'm uh you're making me making me out to be but yeah i think i think i have experienced it you know whether i've thrived or dived i think is another question but yeah oh i and take the take this to heart i think that you are all the more interesting than I, i'm even expressing in this conversation <laughs> uh I, I just pull out one obscure literature refer, reference then you're gonna have a whole fractal dive of information that i'm just never gonna have heard of before um amongst other Sometimes. greater attributes that you have mr Rowan. thank you thank you appreciate that we all have our our, our this is a very moments, but... interesting interview actually speaking of which oh well thank you yeah. I'm enjoying it. Me too. Um, I, oh, I'm happy to hear that. I was going to ask. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, okay, so you went to the Catskills. You so you yeah. would go occasionally, right? Like you mentioned that you would go like on vacation and whatnot, just kind of hike and boop around. Yeah, it's just just weekend, just like yeah. just chill out, just you know, in the when the weather was nice. It's just mm. the city. The city's kind of like oppressive after a bit, so you just yeah, that's just great. Escape for a little bit. Um. Okay, so you're let me let me get this. So you're you're living in the Lower East Side. You're uh, living and working very nice, close to each other. You're, it seems like you're really getting into the New York City culture um, of just knowing it, you know, seeing everybody and walking around and kind of having that uh, Seinfeld life, right? Uh, very like. Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't, don't think I was ever like a native like that because that they to me feel like they're like true like natives and I, I think i was more like a visitor but yeah you're very I mean, transient I, yeah no. but you transient. take on the culture in the way that i would say that it's, it's similar i'm trying to like fill a glass to understand like a good picture and i feel like that's that's a good one you're moving around a lot you're 
sure Mostly what you're doing is moving and talking to people and you're kind of enjoying like the, yeah. the outer loudness that is that that much much of a concrete jungle absolutely um, yeah so what was that like september 12th uh was there any of that was there any of the walking around going to oh. cafes seeing people <laughs> no, 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 no. There was nothing like that. The only place you would go is to donate blood at the hospital. Maybe to go like get emergency supplies. So but September 10th, no... you're going and get a bagel on your way to work. Yeah. September 12th, the only place that you can go is to go donate blood. Pretty much. Or the pharmacy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. What was the look on people's faces? Did you see anybody? Was there anybody on the street? Yes, there was a lot of people out to donate blood. More, there was much more blood than they could accept. They were having to turn people away. There are long lines of people being turned away because it was the only thing you could do. There was no internet. There was no TV. There was no radio. There was radio. There was like emergency radio. But there was really like, there was no work. There was no... Leaving. so you didn't have any internet <laughs> did not have any internet why is that um because a, my provider's network was down hmm. so my provider was out i can't even remember what my provider was but it was out it was out for 48 hours hmm. Maybe a little bit less than that. I think it came. Some people, I did have a cell phone. I think it was out. Yeah, I had, I had a um, a track phone, a a track flip phone, I think. Like a a razor or something. Um, It's definitely services out of 9 11. I can't remember. I can't remember if it came back on the 12th or not. Interesting. And the only, no television. There was no television. They got it back at some point. I can't remember if it was, I think it was the next day. I think it was the 12th and it was, yeah, it was just the news channels basically. All, wow. That was all there was. This is the, the, the broadcast news channels. Uh, yeah. Now there might've been different media experiences. I imagine so. I imagine some people had providers that stayed up and yeah, how but far that was from my experience. You... I felt cut off. What's that? Oh, I mean that—that's very cut off. Yeah. Um, was there? Like, if you looked outside your window, would you be able to see people walking around? Um. Yes, yes, because people needed to. People actually did need to go to the pharmacy, and then at a certain point stores started to reopen and people needed to, you know, people needed to get food. So your bagel place wasn't open? Um, pastry place? I don't think the bagel place was open. The Israeli cafe, I think they opened after a few days. Um, there were like grocery stores and corner stores that opened up though. There was a corner store across from my apartment building. So. What did you do in that from... What did you do on September 12th? I want to go back, but I want to, I'm curious as to what you did on September 12th. I um, sat in my apartment and waited for the TV to come on. And I 
I think I was able to make phone calls. So I was able to call very, like I called my parents and one of my siblings, I think. And we just, yeah, we were able to start, we started to be able to call people at a certain point. So we did a bunch of calls. We kind of like made plans and just planned on how to, we were scheming, trying to figure out how to get off the island. So we were like, that was what a lot of it was. We, we figured out that all the bridges were closed and all the tunnels were closed, but we, it took us a while to piece it together. So we were trying to like figure out how to get off basically because we didn't really know what was next. Did you feel panicked? I was in shock. I didn't feel panic. I think I, I think I was in shock. And for some reason I didn't panic. It felt like too big to panic. Um, so no i don't think i did panic some people did sure a lot of people didn't though actually what um um, what was your plan to get off the island um, you just got off the phone with your sister your parents yeah like we were like i think one 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 idea we had was to go down to the docks and see if there are any like boats that we're going to cross to like Jersey or whatever. <laughs> um, or Long Island. But the plan was to get up to uh, my, my partner's aunt's house. She lived up in the Catskills. And so she lived out in the country. It was like safe, secure. And that's what we did. But I, we didn't do it until I believe September. It was either the 14th or the 15th. Might have been the 14th. And at that point, they opened up the George Washington Bridge, which is how you get up to the Catskills. So you're able to leave the island. How did you get across the bridge? Uh, just, just the normal way, just driving. I mean, just took the normal route and drove. Um, yeah, that was pretty straightforward, that part. Okay. So September 10th, you're getting a bagel on your way into the office. Mm-hmm. September 15th, you're driving across the George Washington Bridge to go hide in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So what was, I believe like the tower, first tower got hit at like eight something in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. So what were you doing? Were you even awake when it first happened? Um. I was like half awake and I was in, believe I was in bed still um, when the first one hit and it, it woke me up. The sound of it hitting? Yeah. Yeah. The sound of it hitting. You could hear it. You hear the, well, I think either that or just the sound of the plane. plane What did it sound like? Um, It sounded like a, Like a big, I well, just, yeah, it was, it was, it sounded like a loud kind of, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, like a loud jet engine that was stressed or strained, kind of, uh, more so rattling. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah, just more, more so than you might expect from a, a loud, almost like jet. a, like a big fan. You know, there was, there was like that. There was a whooshing sound or a fan sound that I remember from some point that day. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure when, but at that point, yeah, it was like um, after it, after it collided, I it wasn't loud enough for me to hear from my apartment. 
So I didn't really know what was going on. So I woke so up. You, felt, you heard like a jet engine screech almost. I heard like a just, yeah, like a super loud jet Lord. engine doing something and then like a, like a boom. But I didn't really know what it was because it didn't make sense to me. So I wasn't really sure what it was. I just heard these, these random noises basically. Hmm. Part of that was, you know, just waking up. But part of it was just, it just didn't make sense. You're like, what would that be? Why would that happen where I am? You know? What did you do next? Um, I got up for a little bit and I just, I just ignored it and did a couple things, I think to get ready. And then I heard like people, shrill voices on the street down below. I was about four stories up off of orchard. And, um, I just looked down and then people seemed to be walking faster than normal. And I was like, what's going on? So I just ran downstairs and, uh, just to go to work, you know, that was, and, um, so you're going in early that day because of this. Yeah. I was curious what was going on. So maybe I got downstairs a little, a little bit after nine and, you know, sometimes I went in at that time. So it wasn't that weird, but, um, yeah. So as I went along the way after a couple blocks, I just got this vantage point. I came around a corner, around a tree in a corner and the sky opened up and I saw the plane stuck into the building and I saw the smoke and, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I didn't know, but other people had been up maybe since it hit. I saw this, maybe it was already 45 minutes and they'd already figured out exactly what was going on. I didn't know. But there were people already reacting emotionally to it. Like they'd been informed. They'd had time to think about it. They'd had time to talk about it with other people on the street. And they were already in panic mode or flight mode or anger mode. And I was like, what's going on? So interesting. So as you're walking, I want to, I want to understand the imagery really quick. So you're walking in after this is happening and there's a clearing in the buildings. And you can mm-hmm. see the trade center with the yeah. tail of it out. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Wow. You know, I, uh, it's easy for me to imagine like where the sky clears up, you know, when you're walking in a downtown area, especially mm-hmm. Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan is, I don't know, many places in the world like that, uh, maybe like outside of Asia, but, um, you know, like seeing the, cloud or like the sky open up and seeing blue with the backdrop of smoke and a plane coming out of it i mean it's it's kind of making my thoughts kind of stop at it for a moment that's that's mm. that's interesting okay so you see this what was your first reaction when you saw that did you stop and stare i did i stopped and stared at it i thought it was spectac- spectacular in a really scary way it wasn't really my first thought was that this is some kind of freak accident. It's not, it's terrible, but it's not like a, no idea of the scope of it. Like none. I I couldn't even conceive of it being this active, like terrorism essentially. So before we go any further on September 11th, when did you get your first jolt of adrenaline? What caused it? Was it waking up and hearing the jet engine? No, it was when I realized from other people's reactions, finally, that it hadn't been a terrorist attack. 
That's what gave me the jolt of adrenaline. Before that, it was just a random plane that randomly crashed into the World Trade Center, but you know, a building. Right. Or it wasn't really that. It was like, it was, I don't know what's going on. Right. I'm not sure. That's what right. it was. I mean, that's a really foreign experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when, when did you, when, what, what person initiated that response? There was a, a van that belonged to the New York NYFD, the New York fire department. So like a van, not a fire truck. And the van had, you know, was stand, you know, was, had the markings of the fire department. So red and it was open in the back and there were about six firemen in it. And, um, I saw that driving down the road and they had a big speaker in the back and they were playing a a Frank Sinatra song about New York. Um, they had the classic one. Mm-hmm. It's not the New title. York. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's just called New York, New York. I think it's just called New York, New York. So they're playing New York, New York. And there's this guy walking down the street with like a tank top. And he didn't look like the kind of guy that would normally be carrying a flag, but he was carrying a huge American flag. And he gave him this kind of salute. Like he raised his arm and gave him a salute and they saluted him back. And uh, then I started hearing all these ambulances, like in the distance, like lots of them. And then that was the first inkling that I thought something like foul play was involved just by seeing that reaction. And then I, then I talked to I stopped to talk to someone and they, they weren't really sure. And then I passed someone else when I got into Little Italy. And I'm not saying this is part of Little Italy, but just geographically, that was about another few blocks. And they said, I heard them one saying to another, we should just go over there and end this and drop a bunch of eggs. And just drop a bunch of eggs all over the Middle East. He meant nuclear bombs. He was like, this is enough. We're done. We're just going to end this. And then I realized, and then someone at that point, lots of people were, I heard terrorist attack, terrorist attack. So then I knew, and then I was, then I just, then I booked it to the office. Then I went straight to the office, a few remaining blocks. Wow. Just kind of picked it up from the street, just random stuff on the street. Interesting. Drop a bunch of eggs. Yeah. Okay. That, I mean, that was a, that was a very common response. Um, Okay. So. Now you, I would imagine running to the office because you, you had a roof, right? Did you go there to the roof of your office first? Um, I went there because I really wanted to know what was going on. And that was where I thought I could find people that I would trust the most to figure out what was going on and to figure out what to do. It felt like the safe thing to do. Because um, at this point, I still wasn't sure what was going on. I just knew that there was something wrong. And it, mm-hmm. maybe it was maybe it was a terrorist attack. So I I didn't necessarily feel like it was safer though. Um, hmm. It was closer than my apartment was to where the uh, 
where the plane had hit. And at this point, no one had any idea that the building was going to come down. It was just a plane in the building. So it was a bad thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't that scary. It was just like really shocking, basically. It's when hmm. the building came down that it got really scary. Describe that. I was standing <clears throat> on the roof of my office. So it was in between Broadway and Grand, about a block north of Canal Street. And the office building was one of these old Soho warehouses that spans the whole city block, kind of narrow and four or five stories. And that's where <clears throat> we, my company rented, rented the whole building. And so we had access to the roof and the roof was kind of like a hangout area. And um, so I run up on the roof and I'm with one of my colleagues there. Um, this woman named Nicole. And Nicole and I were like, what? We were just to each other. We were like, what the fuck is going on? What the fuck is going on? And this is so scary. And then we were just looking at it. We we're just staring at it. We we're standing next to each other. And it started, we could see the top start to fall a little bit and a little bit more. And then the whole thing just started to come down. It was, we didn't know if there was a bomb. We, most people thought a bomb had been set off for that to happen. They didn't realize that the plane was a de facto bomb. No idea of that. So it seemed like it was a, a huge bombing. And you know, it would have been conceivable if you don't know much about war and war technology to believe that someone had set off a small nuclear bomb. I mean, it was like this huge thing being exploded. Um, so we kind of, everyone just kind of ran for the door to go off the roof. <laughs> it was <laughs> like that, that was a true moment of panic. And then, yeah, that's because you was, saw the ring of like explosion and the ring of a uh, force that just kind of came out. Um, so you see like it blows up and it starts collapsing down and you guys all just think something happened and you run to the door. Yeah. I mean, there's this dust coming up, so it's forming this huge cloud and I think it probably just that's evoked explosion. So it didn't, that's probably the thing that most evokes the explosion. Now you could barely make out people jumping off beforehand um, from where I stood, but it was almost that was something I don't think I really could process. I, I thought at first I thought it was rocks or like objects falling off the top. And I realized later that in my mind, the top was crumbling really slowly and it took a long time for the whole thing to come down. But really it was just people jumping off and then it came down, which was pretty intense to realize. Where were you when you realized that? Um, I think I was, I think I was in Hawaii by that time. I think I was gone. It took, it took me a long time to realize that. And that's probably what, six months later? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Can you recall that image? Like it, was it like that where you were like, oh my God, I now understand what happened. And what, how did you, how did you process that? I'm just curious how you process that. That's really what I'm asking. Um, <clears throat> I had pre-processed it because I had heard about that happening and I had thought to myself that, um, you know, what, uh, 
kind of it was this was kind of like a maybe semi-manufactured trope that was going around the media to try to to bolster morale but i had thought to myself that these people at least had a choice and they took their choice rather than burning alive they decided to you know fly off this massive building and so in that last moment they they exercised a little bit of choice and um kind of a horrifying choice of course mm-hmm. um some did- people chose to do nothing and almost made it apparently but i don't think anyone actually made it when the whole building collapsed we had the second plane already hit at this point yeah did yeah, you see the that? second plane had already hit um i missed that for some reason i think i was in the office i can't remember i can't remember the sequence how did you find head. out about that uh, just by going up to the roof and people talking about it like once it was two planes yeah it became like an instant like what we were doing is just trying to accumulate all the information we could and um yeah so that was i found out about that from my office mates when did you first go to the internet i believe i had internet access that day. that day that day when did you first go to the internet that day i can't remember Do you i remember I going to the internet that day no i don't okay. do you remember getting any media that day no i don't remember getting any media that day at all i mean the do morning you- paper had already been delivered but do you Nothing suspect that you did get any media that day? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Okay. And I just, I'm just, I'm just blanking out because I was probably shocked. Shock. It's, it's been a long time. But yeah. Yeah. When did you find out about the other planes that day? Oh, you know, I found out in the evening, I guess, but through, probably through word of mouth, but. Um, yeah, it was, I, I'm not exactly sure. Probably the evening. And there were police stations throughout the city. So there was information being circulated that way. There were, there were tanks. There was a tank on my street corner, on the corner of uh, Stanton and Houston. So when did you I, notice that getting there? I noticed it um, the first day. So what I did, I noticed it on September 11th that after the I think they came that evening. Maybe they came the next day. But I, I you know, I would, I was outside because I wanted to periodically walk around and see what was going on, talk to people. So I saw it as soon as it was up. I think it was probably the next day, next morning. Okay, that's interesting. Man, what a shock! It's also so foreign to think about living before having the internet in your pocket. Hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. I could very much easily suspect that I would get a notification telling me what's going on if there was an attack of this magnitude that was occurring, you know, from my, yeah, my phone provider. And it'd be, you know what I mean? A text message, right? Let alone going on Twitter or whatever bullshit. Um, yeah. It's interesting. The reflex of, that was why I was asking if, if you checked the news, because I was curious is if, if it was even a reflex or 
It doesn't even it doesn't seem as it was. It wasn't really a reflex to check the news on my phone. I well, did didn't have, have a phone. You didn't have a phone that was capable of internet like that, did you? And if you did, I mean, was I that, did was in that Hawaii. Even? I did have a phone with with data with a data connection in Hawaii, and it was like a really simple phone. You could it had like a real just like a really crude native browser, right? And I remember I remember checking the Blazor scores on it. Nice. It was like yeah, the those Nokia's. Those no- Nokia's around that time had like really nice little internet. Yeah. Browsers. Real it simple, was. It was a. It was a. It wasn't use, nice but, like that. What's that? Oh no, they were horrible to use. No, they wasn't. Yeah. But it was like so cool at the time where it's like, oh my god, dude, I'm going on the internet. Yeah. Totally. Um, okay. So what? When did you leave the office? Mm. And how did you eat lunch that day? Let me go with that first. Did you eat breakfast and, and did what did you eat for lunch? Mm, I didn't eat breakfast and I do not believe I ate lunch. Pretty sure I didn't eat either one. <laughs> when that did was you my leave, approach. When did you leave the building? So the, I left the, the building tower falls. A, did you leave the building then? About 11 o'clock. So I stayed for a little bit to try to get as much info as I could. I called my partner um, in the apartment and I just debriefed everything to her and then was like okay i'm gonna be over there in a little bit and i just basically ran back there i just got a little bit more information i'm not sure what else i did there was a few a few a few people i wanted to talk to before i left just to make sure i had all of my points of information and communication set up i think we were trying each other's phones and they weren't working mm-hmm. um wow but yeah i think i i was there for about an hour and then i then I went back maybe 45 minutes and I rushed back to my apartment. And then did you leave your apartment after that? Yeah, I left my, not for a while. I left my apartment in the, in the evening just to walk around and see what was going on. Um, maybe once or twice. That's probably the first time I left just to recon mission. Hmm. When did the military start shutting everything down? It wasn't until the next day because they just weren't there. So it was chaos. You know, the, the, the day of the rest of the day was like, basically people were setting up ways to help each other just organically, kind of anarchistically, essentially, anarchically. And um, what do those look like? They look like information tables, food tables, water tables, first aid tables set up on the sidewalk. Um, set up at intersections uh, in empty lots, that kind of thing. Regular people. Regular people, just neighborhood people, just yeah. Volunteer based, spontaneous volunteership, essentially. Hmm. I never heard that before. Yeah, I saw a few tables like that. It's just people who just set them up and just started because it was like. You know, imagine like by the time noon hits, you've already had, you've already figured out what's going on and you've already been in shock. And then you're like, okay, we're just sitting here with no input. There's no, there's no cable news feed. So let's go outside. There's no internet. See, again, I'm not sure that there was no internet, but for me, there wasn't. But maybe for a lot of people, there was, it was just like, let's go do something. Let's, let's do something, figure something out. So what was the rest of that? You said it was chaos. Like what, what, what was the, so from noon 
until you have your did you eat that day um i think in the evening i ate like crackers or something for my shelf but nothing substantial no okay so from noon until you had a half a sleeve of saltines right what were you doing and what was um I want to know what you were doing, but I want to more so know what the energy of the street was like. Mm. If there's tables around. I see the tables. Are there mm-hmm. people coming to them? Are there are there people just walking around aimlessly? You know, what is the beat of the street? The beat is confusion mostly. There were definitely people coming to the tables. The tables I remember had water. That was like one of the big features. So there was water. Um and lots of people needed it. And it was kind of like de facto first aid. I think mostly it was like, you need to go to the hospital. You just need to like have the interaction with another human. Right. Clean up your scrapes. Yeah. So there's a lot of people wandering around um, just covered in dust and shocked. And they were all over the place and they were like zombies. And they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. So some of them would just wander up to these tables. And they would be given water and they would be like told like, okay, wait here. Or there's a hospital up here, you know, go four blocks and take a right. Um, so you're just seeing people in like everyday clothes, suits. A lot of people in suits because With that's the, covered in dust. The common attire by the trade center. Yeah, exactly. Covered in dust. A lot of people in suits. Uh, How far of a walk are you from the trade center? Um, my office is about... Uh, 10 minutes eight minutes and um yeah my my apartment's probably like uh 25 minutes 20 minutes wow so a lot of people aim just aimlessly walking yeah a lot of other what are the what are the people in your neighborhood doing are they in the street or are they in their apartments i think most of them are in their apartments but uh as i was uh stepping out periodically to try to figure out what was going on talking to other people um maybe going I had believed the corner stores might've been open actually. I think they just stayed open. That's the thing. There was no, it wasn't like with COVID lockdowns where there was legislation or executive mandates like controlling stuff like that. It was just, it was the first day. So it was just, you know, you just did whatever you wanted basically. I'm sure anyone mm-hmm. probably could have opened it if they wanted to. But mostly it was just people helping everyone else and managing the shock. That was definitely like the prevailing thing and just kind of lots of confusion and there was, you know some people were emoting a lot some people were, weren't some people did were you angry. witness any anger yes i mean as i mentioned you know i, I saw the guys wanted immediately like we're gonna drop some eggs um witness a lot of anger like especially the next day like um you know most of the uh most of the shopkeepers in the Lower East Side at that time were not most of them, but a substantial number of them and a substantial number of taxi drivers were people of um, Middle Eastern descent and or of, um, you know, pot, uh, wearing Muslim clothing. So whether or not they were Muslims or from the Middle East, I don't know. But so there's a lot of people that definitely... Um, became the instant target of anger and you can almost kind of feel it did you witness any of that 
Um, yeah, I witnessed the hostility. I didn't witness any like direct acts of violence though, but I witnessed them. No, I did actually. I did. I did witness people being yelled at. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, I witnessed that in Manhattan actually. Um, yeah, and that group of that, those groups of people were pretty affected by it. You could tell they were scared and defensive. Do you remember the what the time on the clock was the last time you looked at it before you went to bed that night? No, I have no idea. Do you know if you remember keeping time? I don't remember keeping time. Um, I don't think I probably stayed up until one or so, but I don't. I don't really remember. Well, um, were you hearing people in the street when you went to sleep? No, I think most people were inside at that point. Um, Was it easy for you to fall asleep? No, because there were sirens going almost all night. And there was this incredibly strong smell of all the burning bodies and all the chemicals that were burning as well, wiring and so on. And that smell of, yeah, like, like basically burning office supplies and, and burning clothing, all these like weird synthetic artificial chemicals and as well as human bodies, it just kind of like took over the, the air so i didn't sleep too well i kind of like slept i think i remember sleeping fitfully hmm. well what was um what was it like and when did the military move in or just when did the state take control of the streets mm. they took control the next morning on as i remember it I'm were not you, the most reliable source, but the September. We're going 12th. off an eyewitness here, and I'm I'm doing some interesting questioning, so it's okay if you don't remember anything. Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, I, th- I believe it was the morning of September 12th. I, I believe that was the first time I was. It became very clear that there were, there was like a strong state presence, and they were starting to like control the public space. Did you see troops when you woke up and look out? You looked out your window. I wouldn't put it that way. I did see. Um, I believe it was National Guard um, manning the tanks, but like we're talking like two, you'd see like two people, maybe three people wearing uh, soldier fatigues, essentially. So when you woke up, there was people in fatigues on the street. Yeah, around the corner from me. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. What did you still hear sirens? Periodically, not 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 nearly as much at that point. Um, but yeah, periodically, yes. Was there anyone walking around your neighborhood? Yes, there were a few people walking around the neighborhood. Uh, people were going out to get food. So uh, that was, there certainly was no delivery, as I remember at least. I went to get food, actually. Um, Where'd you partner, go? My partner and I, we went to a store that was on the north side of uh, Houston in uh, East Village. And the East Village was like right across the street. I think we went, we stopped at a, um, like a pizza place and got a slice of pizza. And then. Did you talk to the guy at the pizza place? 
Um, no, he was, no, he didn't. I don't think he, I think he was too busy to have a conversation, but we did get it. We did get our mail because our mailbox was right there. And, um, there was a postcard in the mailbox. We got it. And, um, probably bought something else like magazines, just, you know, stuff to read. And, uh, we got stopped by the police at the intersection. So there were next to the tank, there was New York uh, NYPD and they were the ones interacting with the public. So, um, we got stopped by NYPD and, but it was right next to the tank. So I had this like, you know, very authoritarian effect. And they're like, you, you have to be able to prove that you live south of Houston to go south of Houston. We had this postcard that was addressed to our address on the stand just down, you know, 50 yards away. So <laughs> until we got past the tank. That postcard <laughs> saved you. Yeah. Good thing you checked your mail. Yeah, really. Really. Yeah. That's interesting. So that's the 12th mm-hmm. and the pre like, so you're getting internet sometime the 12th or 13th. Yeah. You're kind of getting access to the world sometime around the 12th or 13th. Yeah. Until then you're just planning and bored. Um, yeah, I think it was too, we're too wired to be bored. Like you, you could just be sitting on the couch for like, an hour and there wasn't really a feeling of boredom because it was a surreal situation. I mean, you could be sitting on the couch for four. No, you could be sitting on the couch for eight hours straight and then you would still wouldn't have felt boredom. You would have felt stimulation from this like otherworldly reality that just hit. It was like you needed more than a day to process. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever experienced that state again? No, no, I've never experienced anything like that. Not even close. Hmm. When, when did you feel normal again? First feel normal again? Probably. About three weeks after 9-11. So probably. October. Where were you? I was back in the city and work had reopened. Um, but yeah, I was back in my apartment in Lower East Side going, going to work in uh, Soho. How long did you do that again before you left? Um, let's see. Four months, three months, three or four months. Why'd you leave? Um, so the dot-com boom happened, uh, had happened kind of. Yes, it had happened already. The explosion, I'm sorry, the dot-com boom collapse had happened, but 9-11 accelerated it. Um, now, because it had happened before 9-11, this is to permit me a, a slight digression that I think is on, on topic. Um, the company went from 300 people down to like 40 people, right? And it kept 
making the cut. And um, at that point, we were almost sold to Deloitte and Touche Wholesale as their digital agency, their digital arm internally. And they're off, we were gonna be in the 40th floor of the first tower, the World Trade Center, that's where Deloitte and Touche was. That happened in July. So it was wow. to the point where they actually came in and I was interviewed by Deloitte. They interviewed all of us. They were just going to take all of us. That was the deal. But they wanted to at least, you know, meet the people quickly. Were the people that interviewed you working there? At Deloitte? Yeah. At the fourth floor? Yes, they were. That's where their offices were. They were, they were pitching it as a perk or as a, you know, part of the experience of working at Deloitte. Wow. So July 2001. Deloitte is about to buy your digital agency and, and is pitching you on the idea of working on the 40th floor of the World Trade Center one. That's right. Yeah. Wow. How many times did that thought pass through your head? Oh, plenty. Plenty. I mean, I, I thought it sounded kind of cool. I wasn't that into it, but, um, you know, I thought been about up, the view. I, well, I liked it. I'd been up to the, to the uh, Windows on the World a couple times. I'd been there that summer. I thought it was a, I thought I thought the fortieth floor view would be pretty nice as well. Yeah, I bet it, I bet it was. <laughs> wow, how many times did you think about that after? Oh gosh, probably uh, a, a few dozen times over the years. I mean, it's been nineteen years, so. Were you thinking of that at all that day? No, it didn't occur to me that day. I was I was too focused on what was right around me yeah it felt too important to panic i really clung on to that when you said that yeah yeah it's interesting um so you're planning to get out for like five four four days five days Mm -hmm. you get out oh so wait you i don't know if you answered the question actually so why did you leave new york city so you said the agency was was downsizing and almost got bought and then yeah it was 9-11 on the coffin the Netherlands was nail in the coffin. It was, it was just, um, it was just dreadful. It, all of a sudden it became like a really dreadful place to live. I mean, it was, the ruins were there. Like the ruins were like smoking for what seemed like months. And it just seemed terrible. Like it was just all of a sudden like a depressing place to be. And, and the, you know, it looked like the economy was going to like completely blow up. I mean, it's 9-11 just really put the nail in the coffin of the, of the whole dot-com thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew that, you know, I, I just, I was like, let's get out of here. Let's, let's go to Hawaii. Let's like escape to another world that's beautiful and safe and no one's ever going to attack it out of the way. That, so that's why you went to Hawaii in particular? Yeah, yeah. We took our time, you know, we drove across, spent like, I don't know, two or three months kind of just traveling across the U.S. and stopped in Colorado for a bit, California, uh, Eugene, spent like the summer in Eugene and then moved to Hawaii. So That's interesting that you, that was your uh, decision making. What was your New York experience like? in uh october of that year before you before you moved so there's four weeks three weeks before you move what was your new york experience like and how different was it 
from that mm-hmm. to when we first started the conversation in June. Yeah, you know, it was. Um... What was the beat on the street? It was a little more communal and it was a little more dead. <laughs> Those things don't seem to go together, but people were more willing to make eye contact, but people were scared of doing too much. And everyone kind of kind of like was cautious relatively and willing to like look at you relatively. There was a sense of connection briefly, but people were really worried everybody was worried and it was um that was that was the feeling on the street i think the image that you're conjuring in my mind is of a rabbit yeah you know i don't yeah. like you know the rabbits, rabbits will look at you but they're always they're always ready to bolt yeah yeah that's interesting what was your experience like then so if that's what the tenor of the city is like how did that affect your mostly communal situation and how you lived Mm. i mean i think it it made it um bleak and you know it made it kind of tedious um how so tedious i guess just day-to-day activities felt uh, just more kind of less enjoyable and therefore more burdensome and therefore more tedious. Hmm. Interesting. What about going to a cafe or going to a spot to hang out? Did you do very much of that after you moved back and did others? Yes, but cautiously, actually that does kind of remind me of the summer with COVID. Yeah. Kind of cautiously, um, not in as great numbers, but, Definitely. I mean, there's definitely, well, it's definitely like part of the, like the way, the way that you would live. So certainly it would be weird not to do that, I think. Um, so yes. And this is after all, this is when the, the month long marathon to the Metropolitan Museum of Art happened, not in October, but a little bit later. Hmm. So you started doing that right before you left? Yeah, that was like the last, the last month before we left. I think that was March. Interesting. March or April, yeah. Oh, so you left you left in like March or April of two thousand and two. Yeah, it was March. I believe it was March. March. Okay. Yeah. So you were still worried about terrorist attacks following that? Oh yeah. Oh definitely. Um absolutely. It still felt like it was a target of the city of New York. Did you ever feel like you could relax or, and if not, when was the first time you felt like you could? Uh, I did feel like I could relax in the Catskills. Yes. It did. So feel not like, when you were in the city. Not when I was in the city, but the Catskills are not a target for terrorist attacks or it didn't Thank seem God. so as far as we know. Yeah. <laughs> Unless there's some hidden bunkers. Um, yeah. I, I doubt it. I'm just being cheeky. Um, what I, uh, from October until March, could you relax in the city at all? No, not really. 
What do you feel when you go to New York City now? And have you, I mean, I, I think you were there a year ago, right? <laughs> I was there a year ago. I was just there a week ago, actually, just briefly, for like 10 minutes. Um, I, I just, I mean, the first thing that hits me is that's just an amazing, amazing human creation always. That kind of supersedes anything to do with 9-11, to be honest. So that's my feeling when I go there. Um, I do certainly, I mean, I certainly do think about it. Um, I, I look at the new thing they've built and uh, yeah, I usually look for the skyline just to see, see how it's different. So they it's, had these, it's, oh, go ahead. They had these awful uh, blue faux twin towers for the longest time. Like it must've been, the whole, almost the whole time I was there, I think after 9-11, in those few months, there was- It was like big spotlight, big spotlights. Huge spotlights, yeah. They weren't awful, but they weren't great either. Well, it's interesting, because I have that image of the spotlights, mm-hmm. but what I'm thinking now is the spotlights with smoke still coming. Yeah. Yeah, the smoke like yeah, flushing I, out the spotlights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah, I think that was happening. It had to have been, right? If it was, because I know they put those up fairly, not too long after. Right? Not it's too been, long after, yeah. And the if it was smoking for several weeks, maybe in a month, two months, like, yeah. Right, right. Which I didn't know that it was smoking for that long either. That's, it makes sense though. I mean, if in order for a building to get hot enough that it, it melts itself inwards like it did, it probably would be pretty unsustainably, I mean, it doesn't, it takes a lot to get rubber to burn. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. It takes a lot to get steel to melt. So right. um, that's a, that's a self-perpetuating cycle for, that has probably a pretty long half-life. Um, man, I, I never heard about the tables coming up, the zombie people, the, Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you, I mean, I have a very visceral image right now of what that of walking the street would be, would look like. And, to see people before you know, I ever saw it. Yeah. Bef- well, before I, this will add to that image before I ever saw a table with the zombies, I saw the zombies just peeking over. So the westward, the roof of my office, the westward side on Broadway, this is one block north of canal by the end stop. If you look down, so the trade, the world trade centers on Broadway. So it's the main route. It's the main route. So you just, there's a huge horde of people. I'm not saying all of them were like zombified, but certainly there were those that were just covered in white, covered in white chalk and dust. Wow. Just and a lot of them were the discombobulated, just didn't really know what was going on. Didn't, didn't know which direction to go. Wow. That's Probably lots uh... of people that should be under normal circumstances tended to by medical professionals in some way yeah but when you're talking about an instant instant catastrophe and the magnitude of thousands i mean how many paramedics do you really have and how many do you have in a a minute capacity right um right wow um that's that's a very strong image yeah you know yeah i yeah i won't forget that it was too important to panic. It felt too big to panic. Isn't that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, 
you know, everyone, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, 9-11 was a, uh, definitely a national trauma, but it doesn't, it didn't, um, I don't think it affected all of us equally and it couldn't have because of the ways that it happened. Mm -hmm. And without a doubt, you know, New York definitely felt the brunt of that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It took me a while to get, get my head around the idea that it was a national tragedy. It was like, what are you talking about? It was something that happened in New York and like some freak plane crash at the Pentagon. But I, I can see why it was. I I can see it was super psychologically traumatic. Um, yeah, just like COVID, before, I mean, COVID yeah. doesn't affect me, but you know, did affect New York City pretty badly too. Again, though, right? That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty That's interesting. True. Um, what? Uh, I mean, I guess was that a marker in your life? Still, is nine eleven still looked at in my life? You know, yeah. Um. Yeah. Nineteen. 19 years yeah. later is it is it a, is it the milestone marker that you use to judge that epoch of time mm, yeah i do divide things into pre and post you yeah. divide pre and post not not a not a milestone you divide things like before and after yeah i do yeah it's it's yeah there's highly contrasting worlds i think for me at least huh. yeah um did the event was it the event itself that made it contrasting or was it the zeitgeist within it um the zeitgeist within 9-11 or the zeitgeist yeah the zeitgeist of 9-11 so 9-11 happens i mean the world changed i mean it was it's definitely like i think i can make a pretty strong argument that the world we lived in before and the world we lived in after are quite different. yeah yeah, it was it was because of the the zeitgeist caused by nine eleven, consisting of um, just fear, you know, like culture of fear, politics of fear. Yeah, that that's definitely, you know, nine nine eleven was like the was kind of like the for me it was kind of like the end of the nineties, and huh. the nineties were just it was like this feeling of like massive opportunity and, and um, openness and freedom, lack of fear, just tons of prosperity, you know, this huge booming economy and new stuff happening. You know, the internet was completely new. It was changing everything. So um, did your outlook yeah. on the world and the opportunities within it change? Yeah, actually they did. I kind of realized that um, (laughs) I had more opportunities in a sense because I I realized that I realized that um, what it seemed absurd to me, which was to have my own digital agency that I could actually do. And then I actually did create one. It didn't last very long because I moved to Hawaii. (laughs) <laughs> but um which is just because i wanted to do that more i was like i'm gonna i'd rather do this than that but yeah it gave me the sense that it was possible to um 
yeah, just kind of a basic, like possible to start your own business kind of thing. I think on one level, but on another level, it just, it made you think that you don't have to do business the way it's always been done. There's like, even that was still a fairly, a fairly unusual thing at that time. Like that you would, you know, most of the big digital agencies were, were started by really well-connected and probably really wealthy people. And there was a bunch of them in New York city. There's like 10 or 15 of them. And they're all like, it was all like some guy that was just super connected and probably born a multimillionaire and just, you know, launched oh, that, this yeah. thing. So, um, it, so it the, felt so like there was the, a little more opportunity for the digital like proletariat, mm-hmm. such as myself, I think. Um, yeah, and I knew the world was messed up and I knew the economy would suffer, but I still felt like there was there was some opportunity there. There was like some things were changing and, and you couldn't really count on, um, you know, just what people have been telling you for the previous few years. That's really interesting. So you, and it's, I mean, that's beautiful, honestly, that you took that out of it. Cause I mean, you're not, you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur now. And yeah. it seems like that was a pretty important marker on the way to get to where you are now and killing it. Um, but also that you saw the opportunity amidst, amidst all the chaos and you didn't get lost in one, you sought the yeah. other. That's yeah. Really- I, two, three months, four months later, we were, I was, I was technically moonlighting. I didn't tell my company about it, but yeah, I was in a bank, a chase bank in Midtown doing the company formation paperwork and getting the That's bank great. <laughs> with my three, with my three buddies, you know, that's great. And to be clear, it was a complete failure, but um, not a complete failure. Yeah, I did. I did. A, I did actually. It, yeah, no, actually, that no, wasn't a complete failure. I made money that I used to live on in Hawaii. So in that sense, it worked. That's not bad. It just no, was I mean, a short lived. It was a short lived venture. Let's put it that way. That's okay. Most businesses are. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's, a, that, that's, uh, that's amazing. I think. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. This yeah, was, of course. I, this has been fascinating. Actually, I'm, I'm glad to be able to talk at such length on the subject. It's un, unusual that it happens. People are sore about it. They're resistant to it for some reason, which is fine. But it's been, it's been great. It's a, it's a hard event that caused a lot of other things to happen that is dedicated a day of the year. And it's... I just don't think people want to have the time for it. You know, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a good thing. It's not like, I'm not fascinated with the event of nine 11 because it's a good thing and it's a happy medium. I don't get, I don't enjoy studying the Patriot act, but right. Um, right. I mean, I don't necessarily enjoy flossing, but I still do it, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, <clears throat> and I think this is as important as a thing to keep, in mind because of a lot of what you said at the beginning of this, which is a lot of what we're seeing now is a direct result out of actions that happened from a massive traumatic event that you were able to describe as if, you know, we were on the street. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, this was, I, I definitely never, I mean, I'm sure I have put myself to try to put myself in the shoes of there. There was a great 9-11 documentary that was just like, Mm-hmm. You know, scrape together all of those uh, 
like handy cams or whatever cam recorders and police, you know, whoever had a, a recorder that submitted it to that project. And that's, that was really great. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think I quite understood. I, I always like to start trying to imagine something with what the feeling and the smell is. Yeah. Because it's usually the easiest thing. And, and right now, like I'm thinking of the smell of soot and how like, awful that is you know it's just it's like a chemical smell it's not good yeah it's toxic but to see people walking like zombies Mm -hmm. covered in it without any answers no access to your phone no answers no access to anything um and that people started popping up first aid tables you know and i mean like that i i could imagine why it took nine months if we're doing the, the calculation for you to get to Hawaii and have the ability to unpack all of this, to be able to really understand what you were seeing when, you know, right before the tower collapsed right. and understanding, right. like, I, I mean, I woke up, I lived in Chicago. I remember going mm-hmm. to school knowing that a plane hit the, the twi- that hit the towers. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember still we used school. To- yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I went to private school, so I don't think the public schools closed in Chicago. But I, went I to remember that the Sears Roebuck Tower was thought to be like a target. I remember that. I remember they shut down downtown. I remember they did that like around eleven or so. I remember mm-hmm. the teachers rolled TVs into the classrooms and had uh, the news on. Um, right. And I, I remember certain things like that, but it wasn't. Like it was a scary event and it was something that happened, but I was connected still. Yeah. Right? Like I didn't like every, like when the plane, I, I'll never forget. I was in like history class when the plane hit the Pennsylvania plane went down mm-hmm. and, and like they were getting news in and like every, just everyone stopped and you're listening to it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so like we were getting stuff. But to imagine being 15 minutes walk, 20 minute walk from the yeah. center of this and you're completely disconnected from everything you 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 don't right. know i mean dude like i'd be getting my paddleboard and i'd be i would be paddleboarding across the east river and i'd be getting the fuck out of there you know what i mean like and mm-hmm. I, you're not connected to anything right yeah um and i i would i never would have imagined that it's always going to be harder the more that i live in the world that i live in now with technology and internet it's going to be hard for me to imagine not being connected it's it is but yeah, that makes sense. While that is happening, it's even harder still to understand. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If you if you're ever disconnected now, it might be on purpose. Like a like a fast for a couple of days. That's, that's different than being disconnected in a, a crisis. That seems pretty unlikely. Right. And the way that we felt it with COVID <clears throat> now is that there was a absence of information because no one knew anything about the virus. Mm-hmm. Right. So there wasn't that you weren't getting anything. It's just that you didn't know what you were getting. And there was a del- deluge of it's like too nonsense. much bad information. Yeah. Where, what you're nonsense. saying is just uh, right. Sorry, avoided inform- you were saying there's just a void, a void yeah. of information. There was yeah. Nothing. yeah. Man. Well, uh, I would love to have you back. <laughs> I'd love to be back. <laughs> I would love to have you back on uh, several different topics and maybe even just a rolling conversation or, or something like that. Uh, but I it, really appreciate you taking the time. It's been my pleasure, John. This has been, um, this has been good. It's been good to, to get this on tape, you know, to have something to, to, to reference and maybe even for me to listen to. I'll, I'll actually look forward to listening to it. I, I am too. Well, yeah. 
Thanks again. Let's, let's wrap in a second, but uh, thank you again, sure. Ron. Okay. Thank you, John.